We have the right to self-government, to self-determination of land. And the people that are here are going to go back and continue the struggle. This is not an end, it's only a beginning. Hello and welcome to this episode of The True Canadians, the podcast. I'm your host, David Walenko. The podcast is based on the book, also called The True Canadians. I am the co-author, along with Patricia Russell. The opening audio you heard there was uh, an excerpt from legendary Métis hero Jim Sinclair, speaking at a First Minister's Conference in 1987. Today, we're talking with Jason Madden, Métis lawyer, who will be talking with us a little bit about the legal battles of the Métis, the history of the Métis, and a little bit about himself as well. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. I'd like to start with this quote I'm going to throw at you, and we'll go from there. It's actually from the book, from the introduction, and it goes as follows. For over two centuries, the Métis have fought for recognition as an Indigenous people and as a nation. This struggle has occurred on the battlefield, in the courts, and at the negotiating table, often over issues of governance, land rights, and resources. I thought that was a pretty... uh, pretty dynamic opening, and I thought that that would be a good thing to jump off with. But first, let's talk about you a bit, Jason. Uh, you have a lot of experience. You worked at one point with the Métis National Council. Uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 2004, uh, maybe before then, uh, and then you moved on from there. How did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer, and how did you decide you wanted to get involved with this struggle that has taken you all the way to the Supreme Court, I think more than once? Yeah, that's that's true. I've been there about a dozen times now. Um I, I think, you know, where I come from is I'm Métis. I come from historic Métis community in northwestern Ontario, four hours from the Red River Settlement in Fort Francis. My family are the Calders, a well-known Métis family. Uh, some of my ancestors come from the Red River. Some come from northwestern Ontario and Rainy Lake and Rainy River areas. I come from a long line of commercial fishermen, but I have no such skills whatsoever, but have always been able to gap a lot and uh, am very passionate about where I come from and my community and the Métis Nation as a whole. And so got involved in Métis politics at a very, very young age as a youth council representative and at the Métis National Council and in the Métis Nation of Ontario as well, and then decided to go to law school. I have always seen the law as a tool in many ways towards indigenous people, it's been used as a negative tool to oppress or to take away commercial fisheries or, you know, stop people from being on the land. In the, uh, the flip side, I've also seen the law can be a positive tool that can advance indigenous peoples, um, and the Métis people in particular by forcing governments to do the right thing because politics often, and, you know, we see this, um, you know, the right thing isn't often done in politics. It's the, uh, you know, what's the popular thing? What's the convenient thing? What's the gets you reelected thing? And sometimes of moving forward on, you know, indigenous issues and recognizing Métis rights, that always doesn't uh, align with, you know, the popular politics of the day. And so I've always seen the courts as a way of, um, of moving things forward. So I got, uh, went to law school. And the first case that I ever actually appeared in was uh, the Supreme Court of Canada case in Powley. I was just 
wet behind my ears in relation to a lawyer. You know, Jean Taillet, uh, who's another Métis lawyer, took that case from trial all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. I um, came in at the last part and was there for the Métis National Council and the Métis Nation of Ontario as interveners in that case. And Jean did an amazing job representing the Pauli family and the Sault Ste. Marie Métis community over a decade, um, you know, wins in the courts all the way up and ultimately an unanimous victory in the Supreme Court of Canada as well. And I can tell you, you know, sitting in that courtroom and then receiving, being a part of uh, the decision being released, you know, less than a year from that hearing, I got bit by the bug and said, I'm hooked. And I wanted to do this um, and, you know, speak on behalf of my people, speak on behalf of my community advanced Métis rights, not just within, uh, from my home community in Northwestern Ontario, but, you know, within Western Canada and, and, and Ontario as well. And so I've been practicing now for 20 years and have been in the courtrooms, uh, for many of the Métis rights cases that have pushed things forward. I've also been at the negotiation table, whether it's harvesting agreements, the recent self-government agreements, the other land related claims that Métis are advancing. So it's been a labor of love and, uh, you know, I got bit by the bug 20 years ago and I'm still, uh, still fighting. I think that that's, that's one of the things you'll notice uh, when you interview Métis is that we're very passionate about our people, our rights, and making sure that, you know, we're protected for the next generation as well. Through the work that I've done over the years have, uh, you know, had a, had a front row seat and seeing our leaders and you know, Métis people from communities across from Ontario westward, you know, advance Métis rights and also, you know, secure many of the victories, whether those are negotiated or in the courts um, that the Métis have made over the last two decades. But, you know, we're just a drop in the bucket because this struggle has been going on for more than, uh, as you said at the beginning, more than two centuries. Uh, you know, our people have, have continued to always fight for their rights. It's always been 100% clear of that, you know, fundamental to that is the ability for us to take care of ourselves and to, as the people that own themselves and, and fundamental to that is self-government. Well, that, that has been quite a journey. You know, uh, I'm not Métis, Jason, uh, but I am from Red River or what became Winnipeg, as with many of your relations, and I've been to Rainy River. Uh, my first ever summer job was as a newspaper reporter with the Kenora Miner right, right there on Lake of the Woods, and uh, Rainy River was in the area I would cover. Uh, we certainly did not hear a lot about the Métis then, and I spent my uh, my entire childhood between Winnipeg and Lake of the Woods. So maybe with the quest now for recognition and through vehicles like our book, that is changing. It seems it has uh, particularly had some major uh, steps forward in recent years. Can you tell us about how the Métis have progressed in their negotiations with Canada uh, over these past, uh, past seminal years? So in 2017, the Métis Nation of Alberta and other Métis governments begin to sign framework agreements and memorandums of understanding with the government of Canada to set up exploratory discussion tables and then formal negotiation tables. And as I said, it's not unsurprising that topic number one on those tables is self-government. And in 2019, the Métis uh, self-government recognition agreements are signed between Canada in the Métis Nation of Alberta, and the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, and the Métis Nation of Ontario. The Manitoba Métis Federation also signs its own sort of arrangement as well. And that really becomes the starting gun for us to 
see set out a clear pathway for how that nation to nation, government to government relationship between Canada and the Métis governments that represent the Métis nation within Alberta, the Métis nation within Saskatchewan, Métis within Ontario, et cetera, to formalize that relationship through legally binding agreements and ultimately through modern day treaties that are constitutionally protected. So in 2019, that um, self-government agreement is signed. You know, the agreement sets out a, a bit of a roadmap for how you get to a modern day treaty, self-government treaty. The missing piece for the Métis Nation of Alberta had always been, well, the, you know, the Métis Nation of Alberta self-governed itself based upon a set of bylaws, but Métis always knew that we needed our own laws, not bylaws under the Societies Act. We needed our own Métis laws as a constitution to set out who we are, how we will govern ourselves, and really exercise our jurisdiction as Métis governments, as opposed to using Robert's Rules of Order and, you know, bylaws to govern ourselves. And of course, the Métis Nation of Alberta undertakes the largest um, ratification vote of any Indigenous nation in Canada in uh, 2022 and ratifies the Otipimswek Métis government constitution as part and parcel of this, you know, moving towards self-government. I know in Alberta, this has included the creation of an actual constitution, which is quite impressive. And this new legislation we hear about, Bill C-53, is is becoming uh, very topical, Jason. It seems, though, that there's been for many, many years a, a sort of a one-step-forward, two-step-back complex in Métis relations with Canada. And this is deep-seated. It extends at least as far back as the days of Louis Riel. Uh, in fact, in the book, we have this cartoon that is drawn from the famous uh, Schultz car cartoon where Lucy is pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. Only in this case, uh, Lucy is John A. MacDonald and Charlie Brown is Louis Riel. This was meant to signify Riel's efforts to negotiate with Ottawa and, and MacDonald agreeing that uh, agreeing to those negotiations, but then you know, sending troops to Red River. I do want to highlight, though, that our people, it's not because Canada told us to go, you know, adopt a constitution. Our people for generations had been calling for exercising uh, our right, inherent right to self-government and self-determination in the same way that Riel and, you know, Métis and the Red River did in 1869 and 70 when they stood up and declared a provisional government, right? And so these constitutions and this work that our governments have been doing is so fundamental to implementing self-government. But in addition, we've moved forward on formalizing a new self-government agreement that was signed in February 2023, and that's the Métis Self-Government Recognition and Implementation Agreements that were signed with the Métis Nation of Alberta, Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, and Métis Nation of Ontario. Manitoba Métis Federations has signed a similar sort of agreement, and those agreements contemplate upfront legislation that will anchor the future treaties. And I just want to highlight kind of that saying of, Fool us once, uh, shame on you. Fool us twice, shame on us. We've learned by being lucid in the past of having the rug pulled out from under us. And what, why we focused on this implementation legislation coming and being put in place before the treaties is we've had in the past, negotiations happen, agreements are signed with us, and then governments change and they rip up those agreements or they pull the rug out from under us. We've seen that with harvesting agreements. We've seen that with deals that have been negotiated with Métis governments. 
And what we wanted with this legislation is it will become the legislative anchor for the future treaties to be given legal force and effect and constitutionally protected. So that piece of legislation, which has been, is so central and key to our self-government agreements is because we don't want to see, you know, that football being pulled out from us under us um, in the future. And it becomes much harder for a government in the future to pull the football out from under us when it's in law and it has been passed by parliament. If they want to make changes to that law, they have to do it in the daylight hours and they have to go through parliament to make those changes. And so the leadership of the Métis governments, their strategy was, well, let's lock in or let's get this legislation locked in while we have a government that has been uh, far more positive on Indigenous rights and, and Métis rights than any other governments in the past. And um, Bill C-53, which was introduced in June of last year, is the culmination of that. That's the implementation legislation that will anchor these future self-government treaties. Yes, Bill C-53 is drawing a lot of attention. We'll talk about that and, and other legislation. You mentioned the 1982 Constitution Act, which uh, was the raison d'etre of our book, which uh, celebrates the 40th anniversary of that act. It, it was a key milestone, but as the Métis found out, there was so much more uh, left yet to do. We've been doing a lot of work, um, you know, as similar to it wasn't easy for our, our leaders to get Métis included in the Constitution Act 1982. It hasn't been, you know, completely easy uh, to get C-53 through the House of Commons as well as through the Senate. But, you know, this is fundamental to anchoring Métis self-government in the future, but also the legislation recognizes these three Métis governments that are part of the legislation as governments. And um, I think that, that what's so seminal or important about the law is that, you know, um, previously in one of the Supreme Court of Canada cases from 2011, um, they referred to it that Métis lived in what was called a legal lacuna. And for those who don't know what a lacuna means, it just means gap. And it says, like, we've lived in this legal gap. And by virtue of living in this legal gap, governments have been able to ignore us. Governments have been able to not deal with us as peoples. And so C-53, once it passes, will uh, fill that legal gap. It will also provide the legal means in the future for how the treaties that are being negotiated will be given legal force and effect and constitutionally protected. But it's it's uh, it's really, you know, going back to your your original point, it's really, you know, the strategy is to make sure we don't get loose again and uh, make sure that we're able to anchor and lock in this legislative foundation for future Métis treaties, which have always been, you know, the missing piece. But also they are the, you know, the constitutional documents that will set out that nation to nation, government to government relationship that the Métis Nation has always been struggling for. It's also quite interesting that last week, a Supreme Court of Canada decision came down from the Supreme Court uh, in relation to the Child and Family Services uh, legislation that was passed in 2019. There's a lot of similarities between the recognition provided for in what was previously called C-92 or the Child and Family Services legislation and our Métis Self-Government Act, which is called Bill C-53. Through those pieces of legislation, 
parliament affirms and recognizes rights, and it's a positive affirmation. That is good to hear. In terms of the Métis in Alberta, there's been this development of a new constitution we mentioned and, and a new government. How did that evolve? Since the days of Riel, the Métis and the Métis nation has strongly believed that it has the inherent right to self-government and self-determination. And that has taken you know, different forms over history. And in particular, you know, the organization that happens within Alberta in the early 1900s, the creation of the Métis Association and its incorporation in 1961. And it's important to recognize that the reason it incorporated in 1961, it had always been a government for people or a representative of people, but Canada required it to incorporate in order for it to be provided funding because they needed to flow funding to something with legal status and capacity. And it's a bit duplicitous of saying, well, you required us to incorporate in order for us to you know, access funding to support um, programs for our people. But then you then use that incorporation against us to say, well, you're not really a government, you're just an association, right? Like the talking it of both sides of your mouth becomes you know, quite clear you told us to go do that in order to you know, access funding, but then you use that against us. And we went and incorporated, uh, Métis Nation of Alberta incorporated into the Societies Act in 1961 um, as the Métis Association of Alberta and established a set of bylaws uh, to conduct its affairs under the Societies Act. But I just want to highlight that even though we use the Societies Act or the not-for-profit corporation legislation as a means to give, you know, legal status and capacity to the association. The Métis Nation of Alberta and the Otapimiswak Métis governments are Indigenous governments built by Métis for Métis. And the basis for where they get their authority and credibility is not from government, not from the Societies Act, from the people themselves. For over a hundred years, Métis and Alberta have come together through Métis Nation of Alberta and have organized and pushed forward on finally getting that self-government or that nation-to-nation -nation basis recognized. And what was always missing is if you say you're a government, then why on earth would you rely on bylaws that are creation under a Societies Act? And I remember being at many Métis Nation of Alberta um, assemblies over my uh, 20 years of doing work for them. And every time, elders, citizens would get up and say, we need a constitution. We need something that pulls our people together and that is based on Métis law, not Alberta's law, not Canada's law. Because if we don't do it based upon, you know, Riel wasn't looking for his mandate from Canada to negotiate. He went to the council uh, and the parishes to get his mandate to say, should we declare a provisional government? And, um, you know, in that history, it's quite interesting. He had to go back several times because people weren't initially uh, wanting to do that. Some people were uh, concerned that they may get Canada upset. Others were saying, well, we could use the council of Assiniboia. But, you know, that fundamental belief of our mandate comes from our people and our people get to decide. And so that's what, when I've always heard people at MA assemblies talk about the need for a constitution, that's 
their declaration of self-government. That's Métis law, not some other buddy's law, but it comes from the people for the people. Now, that's been a hard uh, developing a constitution isn't easy. It took a multitude of years, extensive consultations. A lot of the discussions needed to be hammered out. Like one of the challenges within the MA's old constitution uh, or bylaws uh, was that there wasn't clarity about who does what, right? So it said the locals do deal with local matters, the regions deal with regional matters, the province deals with provincial matters. Well, you know, anyone can say whatever the matter is. You know, what we needed is clarity is, um, you know, well, who is responsible for consultation? And, you know, through those const- uh, consultations on the constitution became clear, well, that those consultations should be undertaken at the local level through district councils. And that's what the constitution sets out. There's a series of, you know, a bill of rights within the constitution that sets out the rights of all Métis individuals, sets out what are the rights of the Métis nation within Alberta as a whole, sets out what is the relationship with the Métis settlements of Alberta. It sets out the importance of repatriating Métis lands. And, you know, a constitution is about a people's vision and it sets out who they are and it announces themselves to the world in many ways, shapes and forms. Uh, similar to the U.S. Constitution, we the people, um, you know, the a constitution for indigenous governments also sets out this is who we are, this is how we're going to govern ourselves. And it's based upon our inherent right to self-government that flows from our pre-existence prior to Canada becoming Canada not from any recognition that Canada may give to our constitution. So it took a long time to develop the Otapinsuak Métis government constitution, a lot of consultations. Um, you know, the leadership in Alberta was quite clear that they wanted to provide everyone the opportunity to vote on this constitution. And I, I, was, um, I was awed by overwhelmingly 15,000 people came out and voted. Uh, over 55,000 at the time MA citizens were eligible to vote. That really demonstrates, and you know, in Metis elections, you know, there's nowhere close to that turnout in the past. This was a resounding vote, yes, of moving forward on self-government. And I think that um, you know, the MA, you know, it was the largest indigenous ratification vote ever undertaken. All individuals had the opportunity to um, vote within that. And of that 15,000, 15, um, 97% voted overwhelmingly um, in support of that constitution. I think that that just shows the strong basis and the overwhelming support that a constitution has as a whole. Because, you know, one, no one, no other Métis government has had voter turnout like the Métis Nation within Alberta for the ratification of their constitution for any election ever. And I think it just, it really speaks to how significant and how strongly supported the Otavimsoek Métis government constitution is. And I think what's so important for people to understand is this is based upon inherent indigenous jurisdiction, Métis jurisdiction, not someone else's jurisdiction, not a delegated jurisdiction. And that is why its implementation is so important to make sure that, you know, we respect what is set out in the Constitution. 
you know, some of the other issues in the constitution that, that are established is, you know, we wanted to make sure that there was clarity around, you know, who was represented in different parts of the province, um, setting up, you know, 22 districts to make sure that a local level of government is recognized and that that local level of government has in the same way that provinces do have expressed jurisdictions that they govern their own affairs, that they have the responsibility to deal with Métis lands within their district, that they have the responsibility to deal with their own administration, that they have um, the responsibility to deal with consultation and accommodation with industry and, um, and other governments in relation to matters that are occurring within those districts. And that's clearly spelled out in the constitution, whereas it wasn't spelled out previously within the bylaws of the Métis Nation of Alberta, which caused a lot of conflict between the locals, the regions, and the provinces. And the Métis Nation of Alberta constitution, or the Otabimswak Métis government constitution, it is based upon this bringing our people together. And I just, I want to highlight that, that that is also a, another key piece is we're stronger together, right? That Riel went and got the various parishes to come and get his mandate to declare a provisional government. It's the same way of, you know, bringing people together for the resistance in 1885. It's the same way of how the Métis Nation of Alberta has brought communities together in the province because we know we're stronger together. That sounds like a great place to take a break. We've been speaking with prominent Métis lawyer Jason Madden. When we return, Jason will delve more into the, the pattern of Métis negotiations with Ottawa, the key pieces of legislation that are moving things forward even as we speak, and what the Métis hope will come of these efforts. Hello, this is Audrey Petrov. I believe it is really, really important that people understand how long the Métis Nation and the people of the Métis Nation have fought for the right for recognition and their right to self-government. I remember very, very clearly as a young person, all my life hearing people talk about that. So it was important, but it was also important to realize that documentation was happening as to what that meant. So as we grew and as we became leaders, we knew what our people were looking for. They clearly were talking about looking after our Métis people, having those rights recognized that we've always had, our inherent rights. It began with developing what that would look like we signed agreements with the Government of Canada, an MOU that talked about what did that mean. Then we signed a framework agreement in more detail of what we needed to do to make that happen. One of the key parts was as a nation, we needed our own constitution. We did that. We had consultations with our people. We had meetings. We brought it to our annual assembly where our people ratified it. And we had a constitution passed. That was still not the end result. We needed to have that legislated. So no longer would my children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, however many years down the road, be still talking about the same thing. So of course, Bill, 
C-53 was introduced as the legislation that would do that for us. We are still in the midst of those discussions, but that is a true, truly, truly important part of the Métis Nation within Alberta moving to becoming that self-governing nation. All of the other things along the way that happened to the Métis, the horrible incident of script, the Constitution Act that our leaders pushed hard for, the court cases, whether that was Powley, Daniels, those cases that moved us small steps ahead to finally get a government to sign those self-government agreements with us and to now be discussing the importance of legislation. That's the struggles that we faced along the way. So we're back with Métis lawyer Jason Madden. Uh, Jason, uh, elaborate if you can on this legislation you were discussing. Why now? Explain the Bill C-92 decision on Indigenous parenting rights. And, and Bill C-53 currently before Parliament has a, a connection to Section 35 of the 1982 Constitution Act, uh, which recognized Métis rights as well as those of uh, First Nations and Inuit. In the past, governments had always kind of taken this uh, wait-and-see approach of, well, Let's get them to go to court first, establish their rights. And once they establish their rights, maybe we'll negotiate with them as opposed to getting ahead of the bus and saying, we're going to be proactively recognizing rights and saying, no, we recognize you have these rights without you having to go to court or without you having to you know, negotiate for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and uh, you know, we, we will get in front of that. And so the... C-53 does that through a positive affirmation of recognizing the Métis right to self-government as well as the Métis governments um, that are, are in the Act. And the Supreme Court of Canada unanimously handed it down its decision in C-92, which says that sort of recognition is absolutely binding on the Crown, but it should also be applauded. It is exactly what Section 35 calls for is you know, proactive negotiations and proactive recognition, as opposed to sitting on your hands, or some would say, you know, like an ostrich with your head in the sand, you know, not dealing with these things. So that piece of legislation um, that was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada as being constitutionally valid last week is very, bodes very well for C-53 and, and also the recognition that for a large part, Canada has been based on this myth that there is federal jurisdiction and provincial jurisdiction. And, and that is an absolute legal fiction. You know, going back to where I started from, Indigenous jurisdiction is the first jurisdiction in this land. It was here well before Quebec was. It was here well before uh, Canadian laws were imposed. It was here well before provincial laws were imposed. And so what truth and reconciliation is about is recognizing that inherent jurisdiction that was on the land far before Canada became Canada and far before provinces became provinces needs to be reconciled with provincial jurisdiction and federal jurisdiction. So Canada is a, you know, using how the courts call it, a multi-juridical society. We are not just one set of laws, um, you know, as we know within Canada, there's the common law and there's also the civil law from Quebec. And we also have indigenous law. 
And what's really, I think, quite exciting about the C92 reference that came down last week is the court talks about this concept of braiding these different laws together. So indigenous law, which C92 recognizes that indigenous peoples have the right to pass their own laws in relation to child and family services based upon an inherent right to self-government, and that those laws through C92 can become recognized as federal laws within the Canadian legal system. Within the Canadian legal system, if a federal law comes into conflict with a provincial law, the federal law prevails. So how what C92 sets up through section 21 and 22 of that act is through the recognition of indigenous law as federal laws, those laws have the force of law and uh, in, in Canadian law. And if provincial laws dealing with child and family services are inconsistent with those laws based upon it's called the doctrine of paramountcy, those federal laws recognizing indigenous laws will trump provincial laws in relation to child and family services. Now, the court in its, uh, what courts usually do is they only answer the bare minimum question that they need to. So they don't say, well, what happens when that conflict occurs? Um, what they, what they do say though, is the way that C92 is structured in relation to giving that paramountcy to indigenous laws in the future is constitutionally valid. And it really doesn't allow for indigenous laws to be the short end of the stick anymore of kind of going, well, everyone else's jurisdiction trumps yours. And, you know, in particular, also, it recognizes that indigenous peoples can pass their own laws, that we've always had our own laws and we can develop new laws. And those laws can be recognized as just that laws. And I think that that is what is so historic about the C92 reference. Now, people may criticize of saying the court didn't go as far enough to recognize, you know, a universal right to indigenous self-government or that um, recognize that that basic theory that I set out about how, you know, in my opinion, you know, indigenous laws are the first laws of this uh, of this country and they automatically should have, um, you know, paramountcy and premacy and, and before other laws. But what the court does is it creates a legal space to make sure that indigenous laws don't continue to be ignored and that right that indigenous peoples have to, you know, make decisions about their own communities and about their own nation and about their own children and their their own families to keep those intact. Um, that through C92, there is now an ability to ensure that we aren't getting the short end of the stick constantly. Right. Fascinating. The C92 decision has certainly received a lot of uh, recent media attention. Maybe this is a turning point, as we mentioned earlier, a transition away from the age-old tradition of Lucy pulling uh, the football away from Charlie Brown. It really spends a lot of time about recognizing the importance of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which, of course, is a international human rights document and really sets it out in great detail about what some of those rights flowing from self-determination and self-government are and what states should do. And the, the court says very clearly that 
by virtue of the UNDRIP Act that was passed in 2021, that that is now a part of Canadian positive law, and that through the Act um, of C-92, UNDRIP is actually being implemented. Indeed. Uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, has become increasingly relevant. It, it also led to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report in Canada, and the calls to action from that do seem to be having an impact uh, in the quest for legitimate reconciliation. And um, the court writes a lot about the importance of UNDRIP, and it's being kind of a, a north star for how we should work together in the future and what government should do. And so I think that's a really another important point from C92 because it really sets the direction. Because going back to what I said earlier about in the 1980s, you know, the leaders were to sit down and try to figure out, you know, what rights are all included within Section 35. And of course, those constitutional conferences were unsuccessful. What UNDRIP really does is it, it, it puts some meat on the bones about what all of those rights are and how government should operate. And, and the more that UNDRIP becomes a part of accepted of that's the bare minimum of what needs to be recognized. And that's what we should all be working on implementing in Canadian law and through negotiations. I think that that's it's a great part of the C92 reference as well, because it, um, it makes sure that that does act as our North Star about where we're trying to get to and, uh, and implementing un UNDRIP in tangible ways. And of course, last but not least, I'll say, you know, it, it does the affirmation of, um, you know, saying, that uh, the inherent right to self-government exists and it includes jurisdiction in relation to child and family services. And the court says that is absolutely valid for parliament to uh, set out its view on what those rights are. And by virtue of including that in legislation, parliament has bound itself to operate in that way and to conduct itself in that way. So that's that's really significant. So in other arguments, they can't be saying at negotiation tables anymore, well, we don't even know if there's an inherent right to self-government, or we don't know if it includes legislative authority in relation to child and family services. Parliament has now bound itself to that position, and the Supreme Court of Canada has been clear of it. You know, The honor of the Crown is engaged by ensuring that it it conducts itself in that way. So it's, it's really... Um, it's really a significant piece of legislation, and it, it also complements C-53 because that same rights recognition approach that is in C-53 um, has now been affirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada that it is a laudable approach. It is a constitutionally valid approach, and, um, and hopefully that will uh, give a greater impetus for um, the passage of C-53 soon, as, as, um, you know, as we've touched base on um, we're now through the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Committee study stage and now um, ready for third, third reading, going back to the House of Commons, hopefully soon, and then on to the Senate and, and ultimately passage. And, uh, and that is you know, a, a really key part of this self-government journey that the Métis Nation as a whole has been on, but in particular, the Métis Nation of Alberta um, has been on. This reminds me of our guests from our first podcast, uh, President Andrea Sandmeyer of the new government in Alberta and retired President Audrey Patra. President Sandmeyer recalled the tales of a Métis elder, Angie Crier, quoting her own father that someday this recognition would come. And President Sandmeyer said that someday is now. It's been a long struggle. We also have seen what 
slicing and dicing and carving up our communities and having a legislative scheme imposed on us has done for First Nation. The Indian Act is not, well, it does recognize First Nation self-government. It was imposed on First Nations. It was created by parliamentarians and imposed on them. And it cut up and divided their traditional governments, many of their families. They're dealing with the legacy of that colonial and racist pieces piece of legislation today. And they're trying to dig themselves out of it. I've always viewed the Métis reality is it's kind of like we're through the looking glass. So on the First Nations side, they've had control assimilationist policies applied to them. And what we've had is government essentially ignoring, neglecting, denying, and hoping that will just go away, right? Living in what I've referred to as the legal lacuna. What we're digging ourselves out of is that lack of recognition that has plagued our relationship with Canada. And that's why self-government, the modern day treaties is so key. And going back to President Patra's uh, statement that, you know, if we get the relationship right, everything flows from that. And so for the Métis, well, First Nations are trying to dig themselves out of the legacy of the Indian Act, we're attempting to finally put in place that nation-to-nation, government-to-government relationship so we're not denied or ignored anymore in the future. It's important, though, that in doing that, we don't want to replicate the mistakes or the things that we see on the First Nation side where their communities are carved up, there's on-reserve, off-reserve divides being created, not of First Nations' own choosing, but of the Indian Act itself and how you know Canada funds that. And so when the Métis have built their self-government structures and it is they're built upon bringing all of our communities together and making sure no one's left behind. And also we have to recognize that in order to have self-government, you need to have a scale and you need to have the capacity and the ability to self-govern. And that self-government isn't operated by 12 people or 80 people. It requires a level and scale and a capacity to govern. And it also requires that the people who are a part of that or represented by that government want to be represented by that government. You know, today the MA has over 65,000 citizens that willingly mandate it um, as their government. And they know what the constitution is, know that this is where, you know, how the MA will represent them. And they willingly mandate that government to represent them. And so I think it's really important that when you look at why Métis government looks different than First Nations government, it, you know, one of the things was very clear that, well, we don't, we didn't want to be put on reserves or have our communities carved up into small reservations or, or settlements. And the, one of the, the double-edged sword is we have been able to build self-government structures that meet our purposes, right? The double-edged sword, though, is historically those self-government structures haven't been recognized by other governments, right? So while well, Canada does and Alberta will recognize Indian Act bans, right, because it's a federal piece of legislation, they've historically said, well, we just think that you're an association and we're not going to recognize you as an Indigenous government. What's so phenomenal about C-53 and about, you know, um, the Otabimsuak Métis government 
constitution is it's based upon Métis laws, Métis inherent right to self-government, and Canada meeting us where we are and recognizing that government on a nation-to-nation, government-to-government basis, not doing a we-know-best sort of approach and imposing a legislative scheme on us. That is going to be really important, you know, and, and when people kind of go, well, these governments don't exactly track to what the historic communities may have been or, you know, what we were in historic times. That's an absolute fallacy to believe that these governments have to replicate that. They don't. The United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People say Indigenous peoples can build governments for themselves. And the Métis have done just that in Alberta for over a century now through the Métis Nation of Alberta, and they continue to do that through implementing the Yotapinsuak Métis government. So now they're in the process of you know, transitioning and setting up those district councils in all the 22 districts, setting up their judiciary branch, setting up their ombudsman, and all of the different pieces that we've always wanted within our government, but you know have had challenges because it didn't quite fit into corporate bylaws under the Societies Act. The time is now. We are implementing Métis self-government in real time through that Otipinswek Métis government constitution and through ensuring the passage of Bill C-53. And it's a really exciting time for the Métis nation because we're getting closer and closer to that vision that Riel has always had and our people has all, have always had of, of knowing that... Uh, no one can take care of our people better than ourselves and that we can govern ourselves and that we don't need anyone's permission to do that. All we need is a government on the other side of the table respecting the true history of Canada and finally dealing with us on a nation-to-nation, government-to-government basis. And that's an excellent place to conclude. We've been speaking with Métis lawyer Jason Madden, who clearly has a, a great passion for Métis self-government aspirations as well as uh, tremendous legal knowledge and historical understanding. Uh, It's been an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.